Welcome. Good to have you guys here this, this uh, morning. What a, what a beautiful morning. It's so great to hear uh, the voices coming back up this way. I think that's one thing I wish you guys could experience sometimes is the, just the sound of, of, of the worship coming our way as we sing with you guys. Uh, if you're new here this morning, we want to extend just a really special welcome to you, a really warm welcome. We're grateful that you're here or that you've joined us for fellowship this morning. If you're looking for a church home, we certainly hope that you might find one here. Um, and as we say most weeks, we also recognize that there are a number of fantastic churches here in Sheridan um, that, that honor Jesus and, and, and follow Him. And so if you should happen to not, if, if this isn't the place you feel like the Lord is leading you, then we are encouraging you to continue your search and to uh, look into where He might have you. And then when you find that spot, to just really uh, don't just show up and attend, but to uh, plug in and be a part of that church body. How's everybody doing? Everybody's good? All right. Amen. I, got a, I did get a, a, a little cartoon brought to me this morning, uh, and it says, and it's frank and earnest, and it says, if you must shout during my sermons, please make it amen instead of touche. <laughs> so... Just a good rule. Touche. <laughs> Speaking of that, so basically, I want to look at for um, a couple times here. I'm gonna I'm gonna be up uh, this week and next week, and then Anna and I and the boys are gonna be gone on a trip, and Ben is gonna uh, preach at you again. But I wanted to do a couple of things on on just the idea of some apologetics kind of a kind of thing, and and First uh, Peter. 3.15 says this, it says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. And so we as Christians, we're called to have an answer for the hope that's within us. We're, we're, we're called that when the world questions and has questions about God and what this looks like and questions about the Bible that we would have some answers. We would have reasonable, respectful, gentle answers. So remember that, that second part, right? Because that can be a tough one with Christians sometimes. It says, with gentleness and respect. This is how we're supposed to approach an unbelieving world. We're not supposed to approach an unbelieving world like they're believers or like they get this stuff. Lost people do lost things. Lost people live in a lost manner. And, and, and it, if it wasn't for Jesus... And his change in our lives, we have to just be humble with that and recognize that we would be just in the dark and apart from hope and any of those kinds of things as well. So as we approach the world, we don't want to attack the world. The church has been great at attacking the world, right? Done a really good job of that. But, but we don't need to come against the world. Jesus came for the world. And we need to come for the world as well. We need to be that way. And, and, but, but at the same time, there's hard truth that the Bible teaches. There's a reality that the Bible teaches the, the message that the Bible has is not always a comfortable message. It, it's not an easy message. There, there are standards and there are things that the Bible lays out very clearly and very plainly, and we need to stand on those things, but as we stand on the truth, we do it in love, right? So there's a Greek word that this idea of having this defense, it's apologia, it, it, it's where we get our word apologetics, which means to have an answer for, to make a defense of one's beliefs or opinions is basically what we're looking at here. And so today we're going to question the idea, is God good? 
is he good? And, and certainly we know God to be good. We, we as, as Lisa was saying, we've experienced him as father and as savior and as different things like this. But, but, and, and, but maybe you're sitting here today and maybe you're, you're not a Christian. Maybe you've never trusted Jesus in your, in your heart of hearts. You're wondering, is he good? And then maybe you are a Christian. Maybe you are. Maybe you have professed that. Maybe you do understand and walk with Jesus. But maybe when you start getting back into the Old Testament, you just want to brush that aside, right? We have a real tendency to want to just take the, the, the God of the Old Testament and say, well, that was, that was the God of the Old Testament, but, but let's just stay here and let's look at this and let's be comfortable over here. But see, that's not really good theology at all because the Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that God is unchanging. The book of James tells us that, he is, that, that every good thing, every good gift proceeds from him, but in him there is no variation nor shifting shadow. He never changes. God is the same always. And so what do we do with this? Because sometimes whenever we look at the world or we hear from the world, right, these are, these are things that the world is going to challenge you on in your faith. They're going to say, what about these things? What about this God back here that just looks like he's killing everybody? I, I used to be like that. When I, before I was a Christian, I can remember looking at the Bible and, like I said, I, I would just pour, I would try to read it. And I would be like, man, I don't get this. I really don't get this. It just looks to me like, you, like thou shalt not do anything, and, and God's killing everybody. That's, that's what it looks like to me. What, what, what do I do with that, you know? And, and the world has questions, and we are a people who have answers, okay? But let me just tell you, on the front end of this, that these answers are not always comfortable, and they're not always, we can't just always fluff them up in a way that's, that's acceptable. See, we're always sometimes trying to rescue God out of this place and make God more palatable and more acceptable to an unbelieving world. Sometimes we go too far out of our, uh, too far in, in that endeavor. So what do we do with things like this? Where it says, uh, Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. goes on. You shall make no covenant with them and show them no mercy. So no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. Deuteronomy 20 but in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. Finally, the last hard one here for Samuel 15. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way. When they came up out of Egypt, 
Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. Kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep and camel and donkey. Whew, right? Hard stuff. Really hard stuff. Uncomfortable things. How do we deal with that? And what do we, what do, we do with that? Because, see, the world comes back at us. If you read something like, here's uh, Richard Dawkins, who's a very... Uh, outspoken uh, physicist, atheist, and he says this, his view of God is that he is petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, felicital, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Whoa. That's what he says about God. And, and, and I, I find it, isn't it ironic as we kind of think about this, it's ironic that an atheist who really believes that life began in a puddle of ooze and has no absolute basis for morality rails against God and challenges God on his moral stance and his actions. It's interesting that where would he even... And so sometimes in some of those... Uh, you know, interchanges, you, you can even ask that question on what basis, what moral basis do you even base that God is wrong? How can you say that God is wrong? If, see, the, the atheist, the agnostic, the liberal, and the skeptic have no moral standard, really, by which to judge the ethical behavior of God, nor one another, actually. In reality, if there is no God, if there is no absolute... Um, basis for morality outside of ourselves, then basically it's just whatever you like and whatever I like, whatever I prefer and whatever you prefer. And at the end of that, there is no thing. And you say, well, actually there is this thing that universally we understand that some of these things that we're talking about are just wrong, try. And I would say, absolutely, you're right. But that doesn't come from us. That comes because there is an absolute standard of morality that is, that is placed in us and in being created in the very image of God, that, that some of that divine nature that is in us is we understand things about right and wrong. And God has very, very clearly delineated things for us about right and wrong. It's interesting when you look at, at people and you look at who, who would rail against this and would be very angry about that, and then you ask them, what is your stance on, 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 on abortion? Are you pro-choice? Or life. And, and, and if they said, well, I'm pro-choice, then, then, then what is it that, that you believe that the taking of life is morally wrong on God's behalf, but yet a moral right on our behalf? These things get really, it gets really difficult and really, really, um, really deep and really hard. Proverbs 9, 10 tells us this. It says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And so for believers, when we come to these places and we come to these things in the Bible and they're, they're very difficult, they're very hard, we, we need to start from a, from a place of understanding that God is right. God is always right. If he's the source of all morality, if all moral instruction comes first from God, then we actually can't take that moral instruction and turn it back towards God and accuse Him with it. 
because he's always right. If he's the basis of morality, you see, God is always right. And, and, and the fear of the Lord for us is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is where insight begins to happen for us. And so when we look, no doubt this is disturbing to us. But when it doesn't settle well with us, we always need to go and we need to actually look and say, maybe I need a deeper understanding of this versus just beginning to accuse God of being wrong. You see, God really is the moral authority, and he has the moral authority to do whatever he wishes. That's just the reality of it. Let me ask you this. Do you think that people who do bad things should be punished? Yes, no, I do. I believe that that people who, who do bad things should be punished, that it is right when that happens, that justice is a good thing. You see, all judgment, though, precedes from God's goodness. And we have to really start to understand this. You have to start to understand that God doesn't judge out of a, a, a hatred or any, he judges out of his goodness. It is good that God would judge. As a matter of fact, we don't want to be around a God who wouldn't judge. We don't want to be around a God who just takes and sweeps under the carpet what is wrong. If God did, he wouldn't be good. You see, it would begin to, to kind of get on to God and his character and his nature and how we viewed him. Let me ask you this. Let's say, let's say if you knew that next door to me, that, that I had known that there were horrible things that were happening to children in the house next door to me. Now, let's just say this. I thought it was terrible. I thought it was not okay. But I never did anything about it. I never called the police. I never informed anybody. I never did anything on my behalf. Would that change how you saw me? How you saw my character? I believe it would. It would change the way that you saw me because you would be like, try, why didn't you do the right thing? And, and, and so we see this, God, and we have to understand that His goodness is is where his judgment comes from. That God is perfect in his justice, his love, and even his anger. There's a tendency for us to try to somehow get God off of the hook here. To try to somehow make it more palatable, to soften the message. But you see, the reality of the message that we're talking about as we look into these verses is the reality of judgment in the world. And, and, and where, where a guy like Richard Dawkins or many other people, you would, you would hear this idea that God is, is, is commanding genocide. He is not. He's judging sin in these, in these, uh, in these nations. And, and so um, it wasn't arbitrary. God is not just capricious. He's not a capricious God who just wakes up in the morning and is just like, oh, I'm just going to do this way. And then tomorrow he's going to do it a different way. He, he, he's not arbitrary in that. As a matter of fact, when we look in Genesis, um, yeah, it's a hard thing. See now that I, I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. This is the God. This is, this is the power of God. As a matter of fact, God takes life every single day. And whether someone is... 2, 22, or 92, 
nothing or nobody leaves this thing apart from the power of God and who he is. He, he understands, he knows the number of days that every one of us will have and nothing is outside of his control. You see, the reason that God tells us that we can't murder is we can't do anything about it. You take life and it's done, it's over with. But God is different in his sense. God is God and God is able to redeem that which is lost and that which is broken and that which is taken. God can redeem and so therefore it is different when God takes life. And when God takes life, it is never murder. It's not judgment, it's genocide. And what's happening here is that God is using the nation of Israel to bring judgment to a pagan nation. Genesis 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so what is going on there is he's talking about um, Abraham, and, and he's telling Abraham that, that basically that his people are going to be in Egypt until the, uh, the iniquity of the Amorites is complete. That's 400 years that God is patiently waiting for this nation to change, to turn, being warned and forewarned and told, but continuing to just walk in rebellion against God. See, God isn't, he, he's patient, and he's good, and he's gracious. Well, what had they done? That's, that's kind of the big question. What is it that was so bad that these, the Canaanites and the people, that as, as we see this, this conquest that Joshua takes on um, and that goes on from Joshua even there, um, what is it that they had done? Well, for one thing, they'd practice all kinds of different things. There's all kinds of, of, of things in their culture. They, 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 were, uh, they worshiped the goddess uh, Ashtaroth, and, and, and to gain favor and fertility, um, they, they practiced all kinds of uh, adultery, all kinds of um, uh, temple prostitution, homosexuality, transvestitism, pederasty, bestiality, and incest. The other thing that they did regularly, and these things were part of their, their, their worship and part of their life, and, and, and the other thing that they did was they, they had a statue. They had a god named Molech that they worshipped. And, and Molech was this, this kind of uh, bull-headed idol. And it was a big bronze statue. And, and they would light a fire in the belly of this thing, and it had its hands out here. And they would heat the entire statue to super hot. And then they would bring their children, and they would place their children in the hands of this statue. And, the, and, and, and they would burn to death. And, and this was the, the child sacrifice to Molech that, that these people would practice. You see, when a culture is saturated with sin, God eventually brings good, uh, judgment, and he's good enough to bring judgment to it and to not let it go on. See, it's this place where, where, where people are always yelling out, why doesn't God stop the evil in the world? And here's an instant where it says that God is stopping the evil in the world, and we're upset because he's doing this thing, that he's actually stopping it. And we begin to, to bring these charges against God. 
God goes on to tell his people, and this is for us. He says this, Deuteronomy 9, 4, do not say in your heart that after the Lord has, that your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. You see, um, we sing the song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down, right? They sing that in Sunday school and stuff, but this, this is a very much a, a much more difficult picture than that. It's not just a happy little thing. There's a reality of judgment in this world. But you know, all through, and, and it should set us back, it should disturb us. We should sit here disturbed talking about this because it doesn't sit well. Because this is hard stuff. But you see, the, the, the message of the Bible is it eventually that God will bring judgment. That, that right now we sit in a very different place and, and how God is dealing with the world has certainly changed. How he's dealing with people has changed because of the cross. Because God's wrath has been satisfied at the cross, but one day God is going to met out perfect justice again. But you see, all through the Old Testament and even in these difficult stories, we see God's grace and we see his rescue. We see a guy named Abraham who's, a, who's an idol worshiper out of Mesopotamia. And God pulls him out of that and begins a work in his life. And what's going on here is, is that God is acting as a sovereign king with a political and a social agenda. He's driving these people out so that he can preserve the gospel so that the gospel will go forth very clear that he says they have to go, otherwise these people will become tainted just like they were. And, and so he's, he's clearing away. But we see throughout this, we see God's grace and his rescue. You see, even in this, in the walls of Jericho, we see what? We see a woman named Rahab who is a Canaanite prostitute who gets saved out of the destruction of the whole thing. You see, it's not genocide. It's, it has nothing to do with people or their, or their, their ethnic um, or their racial backgrounds. It's about sin, and it's about judgment. And when God brings judgment upon nations, there is collateral damage. When we have a war, there's collateral damage. Sometimes innocent people die, always innocent people die in the midst of those things. It's part of the reality, it's part of the ugliness of the world and the evil that has entered into the world. But you see, God is, he's, he's doing this because of the practices of this nation. And he's bringing the nation in, under judgment and he's using the people of Israel to do it. What we'll see later is that God uses other nations to bring the people of Israel under the same kind of judgment because they fall and they begin to worship idols and they turn away from the one God. See, it's a picture of coming judgment and sometimes we go, oh man, try. It's so uncomfortable. And it is. 
And we think, golly, how could they be so heinous that they would offer their babies to Molech like that and they would burn their babies? But how about 65 million babies that have been lost right here in this country in the name of convenience, at the altar of convenience? 65 million. And where we're headed and, and our ideas about our, our sexuality and that, that we can just do whatever we want, when we want, how we want apart from anything that God ever said about it. What would a book of the Bible look like if God wrote it about our nation today? What would it look like? It would look Old Testament. You see, the command to destroy everyone, it was for a time and a place. And it was at a time, like I said, when, when God was acting as a sovereign king. But you see, today we look back at the cross where God's wrath was satisfied, where there's no longer a social or a political agenda, and we move the gospel forward, and we are told to die for this cause, not kill for it. And we're called, too, to have a Christian worldview in the midst of this, to recognize the reality that life does not end when we leave here. You see, one of the things about this is that God's perspective on life and death are very different than ours. Our perspectives on life and death tend to stay right here in the temporal, but God's doesn't. God's big interest in your life and my life is moving you to a place of eternal security, not keeping you and me comfortable here in this place. But life doesn't end when we leave here. It goes on. And we think, wow, you know, God even said the children there. And that's so harsh. But one day when we, when we go and we're in the presence of God, you know, there's a reality that we're going to see the children of these situations worshiping in the presence of God. Because if you believe like I do, we believe that God saves the children. He saves children. He doesn't... And so, but when God begins to deal with life and death, when he, when he talked about the prodigal son and the prodigal son was gone, or he, he, he said he was dead, and now he's alive. For Adam and Eve, it was the same thing in the garden. Don't do this or you will surely die. But when they did it, a physical death didn't come, but a, certainly a spiritual separation and the death spiritually came. And you see, that's the message of this thing. See, Jesus, Jesus told us this in the New Testament. He said, there were some that were present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than the, all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but in, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You see, this is the gospel. The, the message is this. The message is, is that none of us apart from Jesus have any hope. None of us apart from Jesus will escape the judgment of the wrath to come. The reality of when, when God makes all the books right, what book will you be in? Will you be in the book of life? 
the, 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 the book of the Lamb? Is your name written there? Because if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, then you have eternal life and it's promised to you. And it's promised to you apart from what you've done. It has nothing to do with what you've done. It has everything to do with what Jesus has done for you and for me. And so a lot of times, you know, we don't, we don't like to sit here. We don't like to have these kinds of sermons. We don't like to be uncomfortable. We just like to talk about the nice fuzzy stuff that Jesus does. But that's not life. Life is hard. Life is, life is painful. There's all kinds of things that are going on in the world around us right now that are awful. If you had a 30-second glimpse of it, of all of the evil that is happening in a 30-second span on a global scale, you wouldn't be able to take it. You couldn't stand under that. It would crush you. It would crush me. And this is a God who has watched all of this, who has, who has seen it all go on. And it was taken that sin upon himself. You see, on the cross, Jesus became the cross. He, he became the curse. He, he took the sins of the world and he placed them on, our, on himself. And the sinless son of God, who had known no sin, bore the sin of all of humanity. And he did it so that he could make an exchange with you and I. So that he could say... If you'll trust and believe in my work on the cross, my accomplished work on the cross, then you can be forgiven. That debt that you owe, it can be paid. And you can stand before God, righteous, clothed in white, sinless, forgiven, and promised all eternal life with him. But apart from him, apart from that, you see, we sit in the same place. The same place that they did. And Jesus is telling them, well, you, you think you're better than any of those? It's not about that. It's not about we're going to make somebody better. Or so. it's, it's not about that. It's level at the cross. But the big question is, is do you sit under God's judgment? You see, because here's the deal. God is not sending people to hell. People are headed to hell. See, our sin, just it's our, it's, it's our default. It's where we're going. And God is rescuing out of that. He's pulling out of that. Look at the Ninevites. The people God told Jonah, go tell them. Because they're all perishing. Because my judgment is going to come against them. And Jonah did the opposite of what Jesus would do or what, what he was supposed to do. He did what we do. He went the other way. He looked at them. And he said, they're a bunch of fish slappers. Touche. That was for those of you who watch Veggie Tales. And he didn't even want to go. He didn't even want to go. What did he want? He wanted to watch their demise and their destruction. You see, but we're not called to that. We're called to be a people who have been touched by the grace of God, a people who have been rescued out of that judgment. But of people who also remember and understand and know the reality of that and stand ready to intercede and to have an answer for the hope that is within us. So I know that we're all hopeful that I would have a really nice, comfortable, easy, feel-good kind of a thing out of that. But that's hard stuff. But that's real stuff. And that's what I appreciate about the Bible. It deals in real stuff. It deals in the real reality of where we're at. And the question now is, where do you sit? 
Have you, have you believed in that? Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you said yes to his deal, his exchange, your sin for his righteousness? It's the craziest deal ever. It's a deal that, that goes against the very fiber of who we are because we're rebellious. Because we want to do it our way. We want to earn it or have it somehow. But God says this, you can only have it as a gift, but you can certainly have it. And just have it by simply asking. There's no magic recipe. There's no magic words. You just, in your heart, you just recognize the reality of that, God, I'm sitting under your judgment. But Jesus, you've made a way. And I'm taking that way. I want to surrender my life to you. I want to make you Lord of my life. I want to live according to what you've called me to do. I want to listen to you and walk with you every day. Thank you for forgiving me my sins. And if you do that from a heart that truly wants that, the Bible says that right now you enter into eternal life with God just like that, that you can be born again, that you can be changed, that the Spirit of God can come and live inside of you and change you and help you and walk with you and comfort you and teach you. Lord, may that be the case. Lord, we thank you that you are rescuing out of judgment, that you are rescuing out of death, that you are bringing life, that you're a life-giving God who knows us and even though you know us, even though we've been exposed for everything of who we are, you still love us and you still pursue a relationship with us. And so, Lord, we're just praying that you would help us and help us to be woken up to the reality that, that one day you're going to set the books straight. And in that day, it, it'll be a, not a pleasant day for, for many. And so, Lord, help us that we would go out with a message of hope on our lips, that we would be quick to... to uh, to talk about your salvation and your love to those around us. Help us to, to, uh, to walk close with you as we leave here today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.